On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law, Jesus replied. How do you read it? He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. You answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this and you will live. But he wanted to justify himself So he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? In reply, Jesus said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he fell into the hands of robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down that way, and he saw down the same road, when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So to a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, he passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day he took out two silver coins and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Which of these three do you think was a neighbour to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, go and do likewise. This is the word of the Lord. The second reading is taken from Luke 18, verses 18 to 30, and can be found on page 1052, but as always will also appear on the screen. The rich ruler. A certain ruler asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good, Jesus answered. No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not give false testimony. Honour your father and mother. All these things I've kept since I was a boy, he said. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, You still lack one thing. Sell everything you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come and follow me. When he heard this, he became very sad, because he was a man of great wealth. Jesus looked at him and said, How hard is it for the rich to enter the kingdom of God? Indeed, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Those who heard this asked, Who then can be saved? Jesus replied, What is impossible with men is possible with God. Peter said to him, We have left all we had to follow you. I tell you the truth, Jesus said to them. 
No one has, who has left home or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God will fail to receive many times as much in this age and in the age to come eternal life. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks uh, very much. Well, good morning. For those who may be new, my name is Jis. I'm one of the ministers here. Great privilege to be doing the second in a series that we started last week. Mike opened it up for us based on a book written by Aidan Wilson Tozer, A.W. Tozer, called The Pursuit of God. And can I just really heartily recommend it, if you haven't read it already, to get hold of a copy. Uh, It's free online. It'll be free on your Kindle to download if you've got a Kindle. Or it's not very expensive to buy off Amazon or a good local bookstore, which we prefer, of course. Um, And his testimony is that he was on a single train journey across the great state of Texas, and he wrote this book in a single journey. The words just came to him, and he wrote it down on paper and sent it off to his publisher. And actually, it became his most famous work, And most people who read it say that actually this is something special. This is something special that's been written. Um, And I can can encourage you, it takes an afternoon to read, but it may very well transform you for a lifetime. So as we're going through his book and looking at the different chapters at different mornings, do grab hold of it and read along with us. Well, we're in the second, which um, I'm going to be looking at in just a moment. Let me pray for us all. Lord, we do thank you for your word, and we pray, Lord Jesus, that your kingdom would come here this morning, in our lives together and personally, in our hearts. Pray that by the power of your Holy Spirit, you might speak to us and help us to respond in a right manner that is pleasing in your sight. Amen. Well, back in the 1990s, there was a television advert that ran that asked the question, who would you like to have a one-to-one with? Does anyone remember this advert? And it was for a mobile phone company. And it took various famous people at the time and asked them, who in history, if you could, if you could ask anyone in history a set of questions, have a personal conversation, a one-to-one with, who would you do that with? And various people were given, famous people that you will know, Mahatma Gandhi, Mother Teresa. I remember especially the footballer Ian Wright saying that he would love to have had a one-to-one with Martin Luther King. He would have asked him how he stayed so peaceful and so loving, non-violent resistance in the midst of such opposition and hatred during the civil rights era. Well, in our passage today, two people get to have one-to-ones with Jesus. Perhaps the greatest inspiration behind many of the famous figures we might want to talk to. And both of these people are very different. One is a legal expert, an expert in the Jewish law, a legal eagle, and he comes to Jesus. And the second is a rich ruler. In fact, Matthew's Gospel says that he was a rich young ruler, and he comes to Jesus. They both have very different motives. One is to test him. One is actually to seek his advice. But they both ask him the same question. And the question is this. Teacher, what can I do to inherit eternal life? They ask him the same question. 
In the context of the time, this was a hot topic question. Back in the Old Testament, in Daniel chapter 12, there's a promise that there would be a resurrection from the dead and some would be raised to eternal life and some wouldn't be. And so the cultural question of the time for the Jews was, well, who's in and who's out? Who's going to be raised and who isn't? Help us to know. We want to be part of the people that are raised. And I guess the equivalent question for today's culture might go something like this. How can we know that we have the life that is best, that is the good life, that is truly fulfilling, that is all that it's meant to be, both now and in the future? Well, back in the passages, Jesus, first of all, leads these two individuals to the Old Testament law. He asks the legal expert, so how do you read the law? Tell me. And he brilliantly replies, love the Lord your God with everything you've got and love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus says, great, well done, tick. For the rich ruler, it's the emphasis on the Ten Commandments, especially those last five commandments about your relationship with others. Don't commit adultery, don't murder, don't lie and cheat. Again, he says, I've done these things since I was a boy, tick. Both of them, on the surface, seem to be okay. Both of them probably were going to seemingly inherit this eternal life. But both of them are led by Jesus to somewhere deeper, somewhere further, so that he could really give them what they're asking for. So he could really do a new thing in their lives that they weren't expecting. And these two things that we're going to look at today that he does are two things that we should very well expect him to do in our lives as followers of Christ. He hasn't changed. And if we're honest, we haven't changed that much. And so as we look at these, we're going to be applying them to ourselves here this morning. And the first thing he does is that Jesus exposes their hearts. He exposes what's going on on the inside. What, what hinders them from receiving the life that God promises? Let's look at Luke chapter 10. The parable of the Good Samaritan. You see, not content with Jesus' reply about the law and saying, yes, that's, that's what you're supposed to do, the lawyer tries to trap him and asks the question, so who then is my neighbor? He's hoping that Jesus will either say everybody or just a few people because he could trap him either way, saying, oh, you're just, you love the Roman occupiers, don't you, if you say everybody, or just a few people. Oh, does that mean I need to be belligerent to other people and actually incite revolt? He's hoping to trap Jesus. But Jesus doesn't give in to this trap at all. Actually, he, he redeems the lawyer's silliness and leads him on a journey to expose what's going on inside of him. He tells him this story, which is well known to many of us, of the Good Samaritan, of a man who is on the road from Jerusalem to Jericho and is seized upon by robbers and thieves and beaten up and left for dead. And then a priest comes along from Jerusalem, probably has just done his priestly duties in returning home, and passes by, and not just ignores him, but actually goes to the other side of the road, so he doesn't have to go near him, and carries on his journey. And then afterwards, a Levite, part of the tribe that's been specially chosen by God and dedicated to him, comes along, sees the man, and does exactly the same crosses the road and, and tries to avoid him. But then, of course, comes the Samaritan, a half-Jew, despised in that culture. 
and he sees the man, and he has compassion. He looks at this man and thinks, oh no, what can I do? He takes the man, he bandages his wounds, he pours on wine and oil as a healing salve, he puts the man on his own donkey and takes him to an inn, meaning that he'd have to walk the distance instead. He suffers inconvenience. He suffers a financial cost. He says, here you are, innkeeper. Here are two silver coins. And you can have anything you want on my return that is needed extra, however long it takes for this guy to recover and to be healed. And then he turns to the lawyer. Jesus turns to the lawyer and says, so who then was the neighbor? And of course, the answer is the Samaritan. He says, go and do likewise. And we're not to miss what this would have done in the lawyer's heart. Because his reason for being was the Old Testament Jewish law. He was all about that. That was his profession. And that was his pride, actually. He would have been proud of the Jewish people who had specially been chosen to receive the Old Covenant law. Being proud of their adherence to it, despite overwhelming opposition. It might have been shouting in joy, in fact. But when Jesus tells this story, he exposes that pride within him, this ethnic pride. Because two paradigm individuals of the Jewish culture, a priest and a Levite, act in a way that shows that they're not worthy of being called special. But who acts in the worthy way? Of course, it's the despised half-Jew, the Samaritan. And straight away, the lawyer would have been stirred up on the inside by this. He just exposes what's really gripping this guy's heart and stops him having the life that God does want to give to him, that eternal life that he's been asking about. And the same is true for the rich ruler in Luke 18. And Jesus is a bit more direct with him. When the man says, yes, I've kept the law since my youth, Jesus says one very simple thing. You still lack one thing. Sell everything you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. And then come follow me. And it says the man was very sad because he had great wealth. What was gripping his heart wasn't ethnic pride. It was just good old-fashioned money and wealth. And he couldn't experience the life that Jesus had promised, that God had promised through the old covenant, that Jesus had come to enact in the new covenant, until that had been removed, and Jesus has to expose it first to him. And it's important to see that for two different people, two different things are gripping their hearts. Because actually, every single person will have something that does the same. And it will depend on who they are. It will depend on background, early childhood. It will depend on your goals as a teenager and on to the cusp of adulthood. It will depend on the here and now, actually. What you've done in life and what you're seeking to achieve in life right now. All these things go into the mix of what goes on and what sometimes will grip your heart. It's a complicated thing, actually, that we might not be able to see. But actually, Jesus sees it very clearly. And if we're willing, it might be painful. He is willing to expose them, to deal with them and to remove them, that we might receive the life, that good life that he promises. 
In classic Christian language, this is the issue of idolatry, isn't it? Of worshipping other things, the centre of our lives, that should be reserved only for the Lord Jesus Christ. Dangerous thing to do, because it's only for him. Only he should be there. And also dangerous because of the effect of this. C.S. Lewis once said that idols always break the hearts of their worshippers. They always will at some point. They'll never satisfy. They'll always run short. They'll always be poisonous to you and rob you of life, in fact. classic image of this, of course, is that picture of uh, the Lord of the Rings and you, that character, Gollum, who it's portrayed throughout the films and the books, was originally a young, vibrant guy who's full of life and joy with his friends out fishing. But then, unfortunately, he discovers this one precious ring. Wow, it looks so amazing. I'm going to treasure this in my heart. And slowly but surely, you remember what happens. His life disintegrates around him. He actually physically looks at only a pale imitation of what he used to. And so surely he starts to obsess and it all becomes about this one thing. And he calls it, my precious, my precious. Just robs him of life, robs him of life. And these are the things that Jesus exposes here and wants to do in our lives as well. Expose them, lest they rob us of life. And it might be you're here thinking, I've got nothing that serious going on in my life. It's robbing me like that. But actually, I'm okay. I'm okay. Well, I'd encourage you to think again. It's probably not true. Probably not true. The influential author, David Foster Wallace, who's probably one of the greatest authors in the 20th century, shortly before his tragic suicide, put it like this. There is no such thing as not worshipping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. An outstanding reason for choosing some sort of God is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough, never feel you have enough. Worship your own body and beauty and sexual allure and you will always feel ugly and when time and age start showing you will die a million deaths before they finally bury you. Worship power and you will feel weak and afraid and you will need ever more power over others to keep that fear at bay. Worship your intellect being seen as smart and you will end up feeling stupid, a fraud, and always on the verge of being found out, and so on. The insidious thing about these forms of worship is that they are unconscious. They are default settings. Well, the good news is that even though these may be default settings, we may not see them, Jesus sees very clearly. And if we're willing, he will expose them. He will reveal them to us that they might be lovingly removed. And if you want to begin this process with him, then he's very much up for it, let me suggest. And just a few questions that you could ask yourself in his presence, in prayer, that might help you. Firstly, what are you actively pursuing in life as a goal? Secondly, 
When you daydream, if you have the time to daydream, where do your daydreams normally take you? Thirdly, when you were last very angry about something, why were you angry? What precious thing had been touched? And fourthly, what do you see in others that you wish you had? You wish you had. The answer to those questions will help you to see, with Jesus' help, exactly what it is for you that might be gripping your heart. That God just wants to remove lovingly, give you his life. Well, that was the first thing. Jesus exposes people's hearts. Secondly, in these passages, Jesus gives us his life. He gives us his life. You might not have picked up on it, but in both of these passages, for both of these people, the way to receive eternal life, Jesus says, is to do something. To fulfill the Old Testament law, to be like the Good Samaritan, or to give up your riches and give to the poor. It's do, do, do. And this should jar with us, because we know the gospel of grace is not do, do, do. It's done. It's not about us earning our salvation. It's about Jesus dying on the cross, achieving it for us. It's already done. In the life that we live, we live in faith in that work, the finished work of the cross, as lives of worship and freedom, not under religious burden. And so this should really charm. We've got to ask the question, what is Jesus doing here in these passages? Is he preaching a message that is contrary for the to the very reason he came. What is he doing? This would be the equivalent of Donald Trump suddenly announcing that he's a pro-immigration liberal. It's just inconceivable if that's what Jesus is doing. No, I want to say that he's doing again something much deeper. He's getting them to see in advance the gospel. He's getting them to see it by receiving him in advance. Because you see, Jesus is the ultimate example of each of the things that he asks these two people to do. He is the ultimate good Samaritan. You see, humanity, according to the gospel, according to what Jesus himself said, was in an awful state, bloodied by the side of the road, beaten up by sin, the world, and the enemy. And Jesus could have just left us there, could have ignored us, passed the other side of the road, but he chose not to. He chose to intervene, incarnating into our situation, a great cost to himself. The cost of his compassion was the ultimate cost, not just a couple of silver coins, but his own life poured out upon the cross to bring us healing. That actually now the wine and the oil, symbolizing his blood of the cross and the presence of the Spirit, are the healing salve that restores our life. That he's the ultimate example of the Good Samaritan. And the same is true in what he asks the rich ruler to do. He's the ultimate example of it. That he left his heavenly riches and became poor for our sakes, that we might become rich. The Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 8 says this, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, Yet for your sakes he became poor, that through his poverty you might become rich. He left the splendor of heaven for the ignominy of the manger, so that one day we might have that riches, the riches that he has eternally now, 
the riches of heaven. He's the ultimate example of both of these things. And the reason he asked them to do them is to prepare their hearts to recognize who he is because one day they would hear the gospel message. One day the apostles' preaching of the resurrected Christ who died for their sins would be heard. And if they had followed Jesus' words here, they would have been pre-prepared. They would recognize, oh, that's what he did because I recognize it by what he said to me. Oh, he did that. He asked me to be like the Good Samaritan, but look what he did in giving his life. Oh, he asked me to give, up his, to give up my riches, but look what he did at the cross. Oh, I understand, and I want him as my saviour. I want to receive him as Lord and King. And no doubt, straight away, they would have believed and received the life that Jesus promises, which was him all along. The way to have eternal life? Well, they were looking right at it all along. And one day they had experienced that. And I want to say that for us here today, this is the only reason, really, ultimately, that Jesus wants to deal with the things that grip our hearts. It's to make a way for him to be received as Lord and Saviour. You see, there's only space for one Lord of our lives. There's only one space on the throne room on the throne and it's him it's for him it's reserved for him and anything else anything else means that he can't be there anything else is dangerous to be there anything there robs you of life but only Jesus when he is rightfully there received as saviour will give you life will give you the life that you've always desired that you've always asked for only he can do it He says in John 10 that the thief comes to steal, kill and destroy. But I have come that you might have life and life to the full. It's what he promises to do if you'll let him. And I want to end by suggesting there might be a couple of groups of people here that this is particularly relevant to. Firstly, it might be that there are people here with questions about their own lives asking where it's going and how can I live that life that I've always wanted that I've always sought I want to say that this isn't a bad desire necessarily the early church father saying that, said that the glory of God is man fully alive that actually this is part of his glory seeing us come to have the life that we're meant to have but there are good ways of going about it and there are awful ways of going about it the awful ways are going after everything that the world goes after. And that would just leave you feeling empty and with a bitter aftertaste. Some of you know that already. But the good way, the way that Jesus shows here, is actually him. It's him seeking more of him. It's what, as a church, we're seeking this year especially. So as individuals, I'd encourage you to do. Let him displace the idols, things that grip your heart, and let him have his way. And secondly, it might be that there are some here who've never known the life that Jesus offers. You've had these questions and you haven't had answers yet. And it might be that God has been doing that preparatory work, just as he had to do with these two guys, before they could hear the message of the gospel. And if God has been doing that preparatory work in your life, let him do it. Let him do it. But don't. Avoid the need to receive Jesus as your Lord and Saviour. 
that there is space in your heart for only one Lord. It's either going to be the things that you go after, it's either going to be your own ego, your own pride, your own security, or it's going to be him. The, the latter is the only wise way. The former will just rob you of everything in the end. There is a call here from these two examples to receive him as he offers his life to you. Well, I want to end our time together by using a prayer that Tozer wrote on this particular topic. Let's pray together, and I'm going to pray these words. Father, I want to know you, but my fearful heart fears to give up its toys. I cannot part with them without inward bleeding, and I do not try to hide from you the terror of the parting. I come trembling, but I do come. Please root from my heart all those things which I have cherished so long and which have become part of my very living self, so that you may enter and dwell there without a rival. Then shall you make the place of your feet glorious. Then shall my heart have no need of the sun to shine in it, for you will be the light of it, and there shall be no night there. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.